As recently as 2015, the University of Phoenix enrolled more than 400,000 learners, making it not only the center of the for-profit higher education universe, but the biggest university by far in the United States. Last month, we learned that it might be bought by a nonprofit affiliated with the University of Arkansas system, raising fascinating questions about the state of for-profit higher ed and how to regulate the increasingly blurry landscape of post-secondary education and training. Hello, and welcome back to The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed and host of The Key. I'm excited to get this podcast up and running again after too long an absence, and we've got a great episode to get us restarted. News that the University of Arkansas system might buy the University of Phoenix wasn't exactly shocking. The private equity firm that owns Phoenix has reportedly been shopping for a new owner for several years, and this ground has been plowed in the last few years by somewhat similar transactions, like Purdue's absorption of Kaplan and the University of Arizona's of Ashford University. Today's episode is less about a possible Arkansas-Phoenix marriage, which we still know little about, than it is a logical time to take stock of the state of the for-profit institution sector. We couldn't have a better group to engage in that conversation from a variety of perspectives. Kevin Kinser, who heads the Department of Education Policy Studies at Pennsylvania State University and has studied for-profit higher education about as closely as anyone. Julie Peller, Executive Director of the nonprofit Higher Learning Advocates and a longtime expert on federal higher ed policy. And Paul Fain, who edits a weekly newsletter called The Job that focuses on the connection between education and the workforce and, it must be said, created this podcast when he was my colleague at Inside Higher Ed. We'll get to our conversation in a moment. But first, a word about a brand new editorial offering from Inside Higher Ed. Are you passionate about student success? Sign up for Inside Higher Ed's new and free student success daily newsletter. Visit InsideHigherEd.com and click on Student Success at the top of the page. By signing up today, you will get the latest and most actionable student success-related news and advice sent right to your inbox. Learn more at InsideHigherEd.com. Now on to today's discussion. Kevin, Julie, and Paul, welcome to The Key, and thanks very much for being here. This was a, some really interesting news, as, as we just discussed in, in uh, the last week or so, about University of uh, Arkansas system potentially buying the University of Phoenix. And I guess I'm curious to hear from all of you, what most jumped out at you about the sale, potential sale of the University of Phoenix to Arkansas? And what, if anything, does that potential sale. Tell us about the broader landscape for for-profit colleges and universities. Kevin, uh, want to start us off? This used to be the by far the biggest university in the United States. Depending on how you counted it, half a million students involved in this, campuses all over the place. I remember back in the 90s, there was an article written that said the scare words of choice in higher education are the University of Phoenix. Actually, it said the University of Phoenix and Western Governors University, which is kind of interesting to, to, to think about how that, that prediction plays out now. The idea that uh, John Sperling, who's the founder of the University of Phoenix, you know, was specifically looking to uh, move against this sort of notion of how public education was constructed and the restrictions associated with that. The idea that comes full circle in some ways and now um, potentially getting taken over by by a state school. I mean, it sounds kind of uh, remarkable. I think the other thing is that we're still this idea of what does it actually what is it actually doing? And we saw this with Purdue, with Arizona. Are they actually purchasing anything? Like what it, what is the what is the transaction that's happening here? They're, they've developed this as as become common this sort of nonprofit entity that um, somehow is going to acquire 
um, this entity with affiliated status. And, and you know, the devils are in the detail. Um, we saw that with what, what Purdue was doing, um, the back and forth with Arizona Global. Uh, so question about that. And the third thing was Arkansas has previously taken over a for-profit. Um, and so they might actually feel like they've got some experience with this that can leverage this and make it something that is um, a net positive for them. It's important for us to stipulate just how much we don't know. These are still early days, and as you said, the details are far from clear. When I first heard about it, I assumed they were going to merge it into the University of Arkansas Grantham, the new public institution that Arkansas created when it purchased Grantham University last year, which itself emerged out of Eversity, the online-only university the Arkansas system created in 2014. So there's lots we don't know about the Arkansas-Phoenix situation. We're mostly having this conversation using this news as a jumping off point rather than really being able to say that that much about what's actually going to happen here. Julie, your early thoughts on what the larger implications are for this for-profit sector that the University of Phoenix was the primary example of? I think about it from the who institutions are trying to serve perspective, right? When University of Phoenix was first conceived. John Sperling intentionally put the campuses right off of highways so that people coming home from work could stop in and go go to school. I think that ethos of serving a different kind of student is, you know, carried throughout the life of University of Phoenix. And I think what's interesting to me is from the flip side of what makes it attractive to a University of Arkansas to a public institution. The public sector is trying to figure out how to serve and how to attract adult learners, working students, who we call today students, but less traditional students. That used to be the for-profit's market share and only the for-profit market share. But now, and for a long time, public institutions have kind of been in that space, but they're going after those students much more aggressively and bringing inside some of those outside entities like a Phoenix is kind of an interesting way way to go about it. This is focusing on the publics because it's what Arkansas is doing. Most of the growth we've seen in targeting that audience has been in the private nonprofits, the Southern New Hampshire's of the world, uh, the uh, WGU uh, that, that Kevin already mentioned. Paul, you've been covering this stuff probably as well and as long as anybody. What, what do you make of it? And uh, how, how do you want us to be thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I totally agree with what Julie and Kevin say. I mean, University of Phoenix wasn't just synonymous with for-profit higher education. It was synonymous with career education, I think, and certainly online. I mean, it was the game for so long, and it's been a while. It's down to one-fifth or so, maybe less, of its its peak in terms of enrollment. It's been hemorrhaging money for a long time. But, you know, I had heard even some folks who are critical of the sector and of Phoenix, some real assets. You know, 85,000 students isn't nothing in online education. You know, if, if this Arkansas system entity gets it, they'll immediately be a player. Like, we can't forget that, it. you know, despite it being a shell of what it was, it's still a thing that is probably worth a lot if you're trying to catch up in online career education. Really, though, to me, wasn't surprised. I've certainly heard this was in the works for a while. I was hoping it was since I had reported that it was. And as you say, it's not final. Um, who knows? It's a strange time. But I think the idea of the freestanding degree issuing 
big for-profit chain, particularly publicly traded, this is a sign that those days are over, I think. And that's just, you know, years of toxicity, uh, public relations, scandals, and lots of remaining regulatory headwinds. There's a bunch of stuff we can talk about, about sort of the shape of online education and uh, and the influence of the for-profits and the shifting definition of what uh, for-profit higher education means these days. It's less about institutions than about companies that are integrated with uh, institutions. But we'll, let's put that aside for a second. Let's talk about the for-profit institutional sector first. Paul, you just said you think those days are kind of over. Enrollment at for-profit institutions have dropped you know, by roughly half over the course of the 2010s, but it's still in the, it was in the 800,000 range, I think, last I looked in uh, 2021, maybe. And Phoenix takes a 10% of that out of the picture if it stops being in that bucket. I'm curious, maybe Kevin and, and Julie to respond maybe to this question of what is the future of the for-profit institution? We've seen all these places try to transition to becoming nonprofit in various ways, some some more successfully than others. And But what do you think about whether there is still a place for the for-profit institution? It relates to the question of who does the, the heavy lifting work that you've all talked about, about career education and educating adults, et cetera. So a lot in that question that wasn't terrifically well organized. But Kevin, you have initial thoughts on that? Well, I mean, with apologies to Mark Twain, the, the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. There is a, uh, you know, a cyclical component to this. We've seen this going back, you know, pre-World War II with um, for-profit institutions emerging, there being some controversy or scandal. There's a regulatory um, effort that goes on that draws them. And in fact, our, the accreditation system that we have today was born out of this need to have some sort of control over for-profits after World War II, right? So, we, we see this kind of regulatory and, you know, the for-profit sector um, adapts, adjusts, um, figures out new ways of operating under the regulatory zone and then continues on. And, you know, about every 20 years or so, we will see another another realm of this. I think as you point out too, the, the numbers aren't, um, aren't small. 80,000 students still makes it one of the biggest universities in the United States, um, no doubt about it. It would clearly be the biggest conversion of a for-profit institution into a nonprofit that we've seen. At least for the time being, we've we we are certainly out of that era where running a for-profit institution was the same thing as printing money. It's much more okay. We need to figure out what is the the particular focus of this institution. Is it going to be in healthcare? Is it going to be in sort of local community development? Um, more of a local focus to the institution. The online space has more recently been dominated by nonprofits now with Western Governors University, Southern New Hampshire University. I'm not sure where Liberty is now, but I mean, those were those were the, the, the big players that have really taken over that for-profit mantle. And I think the final point is universities are, universities themselves are in essence becoming for-profit entities, looking not just in terms of the partnerships that they're doing with for-profits through OPMs and other kinds of contractual entities, but also in the way that they think about their finances. The ability to instantly gain 80,000 students is not being done because they step back and say, hmm, we really want to serve these 80,000 students better. It's because that represents a lot of tuition money that they can do a lot of stuff with. And I think that's the that's the economics of higher education that we have now in the United States, people looking for those tuition dollars, particularly as we see um, enrollments, well, recently declining, maybe sta st um, stabilizing now, but 
Julie, you think about this, you know, pretty very much from a policy standpoint. I don't want to limit you to that, but what is your sense of the state of the sort of for-profit institution sector? What do you think it should be? How do you look at this set of developments and what how do you read them? I read them in two different ways from a kind of policy or oversight perspective. The first is what we've seen and where we've seen institutions that have done for-profit institutions that have continued to be profitable and grow are, to Kevin's point, those that are really specific on either the community they serve or the programs that they offer. You know, I, I do see a lot of this shrinkage, which happened for a lot of reasons, one of which I do think is a course correction from the growth into liberal arts degrees and other areas by for-profit, particularly large for-profit. That's where we're seeing the retreat, right? We're not seeing as much retreat from very career-focused programs, the professional programs, local, smaller, for-profit entities that often we leave out in these conversations because they're not um, publicly traded and as big. That's one is kind of what is the purpose of institutions? And it does, that absolutely goes to who's who's serving the and providing um, skills, education, and um, opportunities for the jobs of tomorrow. Secondly, we need to be talking about what does good look like for a program, for a student. From an oversight perspective, I think the black and white lines of saying we look at for-profits this way and we look at non-profits that way needs to be rethought because the market does not (laughs) work that way anymore. If we look at where we started of if there is a deal between Arkansas and University of Phoenix, is that a for-profit entity? Is that not a for-profit entity? And our regulatory systems just are not equipped right now to really answer that gray area, which is where I think needs to go. Paul, before we got on, I was referring to a book chapter that you and I wrote about the for-profit sector back in 2015 for a Stanford University press book called The New Ecology of Higher Education. The chapter was called Boom, Regulate, Cleanse, Repeat, and it described the cycle Kevin was referring to before where enrollment blows up for the for-profit institutions, often through sometimes sketchy marketing-fueled practices. Some institutions cross lines, regulators toughen up the rules governing them, sector shrinks, and most of the survivors operate somewhat better. We didn't predict the end of the sector. When you said before that the days of the big for-profit are over, do you think we're on the verge of seeing this sector disappear or just certain elements of it? Well, I think the right thing to do for me is to make another prediction here. Um, It's certainly about such an easy and safe topic, uh, for-profit education. (laughs) But, you know, I will say, and this is from interviews with folks in the space and and, and investors, Title IV eligible, federal aid eligible, degree issuing, national footprint? No, I, I don't see it. I mean, I think, yeah, it's uh, you, you definitely still have Strayer and Capella clicking along. They're doing well. Um, I don't think they're growing much, though. American public still still going along. At Talem, last I saw, mostly uh, overseas, uh, you know, very different type of company than when it had DeVry. I mean, the, those big chains have collapsed. I've always wondered, like, where are the consumer groups celebrating? Like, you won. <laughs> They're largely gone. But, you know, you can't generalize about anything in higher education. For-profit education is bigger than those chains. You know, it's 
depending on how you cut it, it's 5% of total enrollment. So it's not as big as the public uh, policy debate would have you think. But the ones that are doing well, from what I hear, you know, small, local, vocational trade schools, health, allied healthcare, automotive repair, those sort of programs that the students probably don't know or care if they're, you know, attending a for-profit or a public or a private nonprofit. But I think, you know, I wasn't, we weren't totally wrong, Doug, to predict that things would kind of come back. You know, I was just thinking about this today. It was, you know, 11 years ago when Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa a Democrat put out that big report on the for-profit sector. I always think about this. I had to look to make sure he said it, but he said, this is an industry that's here to stay, will continue to play a significant role in serving growing numbers of non-traditional and disadvantaged groups of students. That didn't really happen, but I think part of what did happen was in the following years, the Obama administration, Senator Elizabeth Warren, they moved away from the bad actors, good actors argument to just bad. And I remember you hear often like worthless degrees, like every Phoenix degree or ITT credential was worthless. It's hard to compete with that, particularly as we've talked about Western governors, Southern New Hampshire, just dominating the market, getting close to 200,000 students. But it's not just them. I mean, ASU Online, that's a good brand that's hard to compete with. Inside Higher Ed Careers attracts thousands of engaged faculty, staff, and administrators to its job listings marketplace each day. Get your institution's job openings in front of this top-tier talent by posting them on the Inside Higher Ed Careers portal today. From single listings to unlimited packages, we have a range of budget-friendly hiring solutions to help you meet your campus recruitment goals. Visit shopcareers.insidehighered.com to get started. Talking today with Julie Peller of Higher Learning Advocates, Kevin Kinzer of Penn State University, and Paul Fain, editor of the Job Newsletter. Julie, I want to bring it back to you as the resident policy expert in the discussion. Paul asserted, and I tend to agree, that the consumer advocates who tried to largely eradicate for-profit higher ed from the face of the earth have largely succeeded, whether we agree that the sector is fully dead or just permanently shrunken and altered. Is our public policy still overly focused on those institutions. You were hitting before, I think, at a broader questioning of quality and performance across the post-secondary education and training ecosystem, as I so pithily like to refer to it, instead of the usual higher ed. Do you think the continued focus on for-profits as the evil empire is misdirected, overemphasized? I do wish that we had the same level of conversation about value and outcomes for students in all institutions that has happened over the last 10, 15 years for for for-profit institutions. At the same time, I think it's right to ask separate governance questions of for-profit institutions because the federal oversight for public institutions assumes that the state is looking after certain things or nonprofit governance rules looks over certain things for nonprofit private institutions. We can argue right, wrong, enough, not enough with all of that. But just if you look at structurally, those things don't exist in the for-profit sector. But that doesn't mean that we we should stop asking questions about 
outcomes and value and return for students in all programs. I'm heartened by, you know, we'll see if it <laughs> goes anywhere, but by like the Biden administration's current request for information about a low value index that looks at across all institutions. I think we're starting to get there. I think we're starting to have some of those conversations um, at the same time as there's a continued thread and hyper focus by some policymakers, some advocates on the profit question. Kevin, what's your thought on this sort of policy question? I think we're getting to the point where the idea of designating an institution as a whole as for-profit or non-profit is, is problematic because there is so much blurriness in those labels that uh, makes it difficult. The, the, the for-profit industry used to say, we are, we are looking at, we're trying to do good just because our tax status is different doesn't mean that we're any different. We know from international work on the private sector that those labels of nonprofit and for-profit often don't mean anything. They're, they're legal fictions in terms of operation. And I think there really should be an exploration from a policy perspective about should there be more definitions or more categorizations of institutions rather than the three sectors that we have right now, nonprofit, public, and private, because these kinds of combinations are happening so frequently. That's a variation on what Julie is saying. It says, okay, we, we still need to have scrutiny here, We need, but we need to be looking at all institutions. There is a, a risk factor involved in the for-profit form that I think needs to be discussed. But I think the Arizona Global issue pointed out how that risk factor doesn't get eliminated just because you move it into this sort of nonprofit organizational status that the the motivations and and pressures can still exist and be quite contradictory. The for-profits have played an important role. And you all talked about John Sperling's, uh, the the origins of it. And I agree, Julie, that that a lot of the institutions to the extent they still exist, are, are going back to their roots as focusing on this important job that we as a country haven't done a terrifically good job with, which is direct preparation of people for the workforce. And there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of room for a lot of different kinds of players in that. And Paul's, uh, you know, Paul writes about a lot of that in his newsletter, The Job, and focusing on sort of a lot of the entities around traditional institutions that are playing a role in creating career pathways. And the for-profits always said, and I actually, it was one of the reasons I was never in that camp of people who said, oh, we should just eradicate them from the face of the earth, that there was a role for them potentially when they were doing things well. Is there a place for institutions that are not public, not private nonprofit in this important team effort of trying to create and train the workforce the future. Actually, Paul, I'll probably start with you because, again, this is terrain you focus on. Well, I definitely agree with, with Julie and Kevin that the boundaries are getting blurrier all the time. You can look at the debate over online program management companies and their partners as being a continuation of this discussion. And, you know, one of the most compelling arguments by an advocate who is anti-for-profit uh, that I ever heard uh, was, you know, if a company's well run and they don't chase growth at the expense of quality and they don't compensate their executives grotesquely, these things can work as for profit degree issuing entities. But I think we can all say ITT, Corinthian being good examples, when it goes off the rails, it goes off the rails. So I think that is a central entity. The degree issuer is where it gets fraught. But, you know, like I was looking at that great piece in NC Assembly about High Point University 
uh, private nonprofit, of course, 23, I think, percent profit margins, massive marketing campaigns. So the sectors learn from each other. You know, Southern New Hampshire's President Paul LeBlanc has said that he learned from Phoenix. There are lessons there. I think, you know, looking forward, what's the really tough conversation? The bottom line, it's it's depressing, is that if you're in the space of trying to train low-income, minoritized students for jobs like home health care aides, uh, allied health writ large, early child care, your outcomes are going to be bad. Your completion rates are going to be bad. You're going to have default. You're going to have low salaries. And I think like nuance around that. I mean, I, I love community colleges, write about them all the time. As we all know, completion rates can be very low in that sector. What's acceptable? Where is higher education's responsibility there? Where does it end? These are like the sort of nuance I'd like to see in policy debates going forward that hasn't been there. Point is, you don't want students to be worse off for having attempted higher education than they would be had they not done anything at all. And I think that's where you draw how you actually figure that out is is part of the question. And then the other point about the, you know sort of the growth fo- focus. Um, one of the things I used to say is that um, for-profit institutions were demand-creating institutions. They went out and sought out students and brought them into higher education who would not have who would not have naturally done that. And part of the places where they got off the rail was when they instead of doing that demand creating, they kind of said, well, let's go out and let's take away students that would have been in better served in other kinds of institutions. Let's use those kinds of things. And I think that that notion of saying a for-profit institution has a role to play, or let's not say for-profit, institutions in general who are focused on that niche of bringing people in and helping them be better off through uh, education is an important role to play. And for-profits have um, I might even say traditionally served in that role um, with some of these notable exceptions a- involved as well. They also went off the rails, as sort of Julie said before, when they went from focusing on preparing people for jobs to offering credentials and degrees in fields where they couldn't necessarily do that uh, in, in more liberal arts fields. And that was in the interest of growth. Julie, yeah, Paul's asking for a better public policy. Can we deliver on that? I'm not sure we can. Not to all of our satisfaction, you know, especially at the federal policy level. Federal policy is a hammer. It is a really blunt tool. Um, I think we can answer better the question that Kevin just asked of, is this institution or, in my more ideal, is this program at an institution leaving students better or worse off than when they came in. And if they're leaving them worse off in a large percentage, then we need to talk about, are we putting public dollars to send students there? Where public policy at the federal level is hindered is, is this a good institution? Is this a good bet for a student? I think largely because as a nation, we've not really agreed writ large for higher education and a broad brush to say, this is what the good outcome is, right? What is the, are you college and career ready equivalent um, in higher education? We just have not gotten there as a policy community. In the meantime, we need to answer better, is this harmful? But I think too often in conversations, we conflate those things and say, we have failed because we can't answer the good question doesn't mean we should stop trying to answer the bad question. You know, I'm particularly interested in, Doug, what you said about the larger post-secondary landscape. And as we talk about not only for-profit and nonprofit blending, but 
degrees, certificates, certifications, all being part of this landscape. For-profit entities, they may not be institutions of higher education yet, but for-profit entities are serving and training learners in all sorts of places in that credential, sub-degree credential space. And we're seeing growing demand for those kind of credentials. And I'm interested in how how a for-profit entity plays there and what lessons from a policy perspective we can learn from the regulatory swings of for-profit institutions to apply to make that a better better chance and a better <laughs> ecosystem for, for people. I was in a conversation this week and had me remembering early conversations among some of the boot camp providers about whether they should become quote institutions in some fashion, whether they wanted to play in the Title IV space. And I think most of them kind of rightly decided that wasn't the game they necessarily wanted to play in. But Paul, I'm curious, do you think uh, what Julie just said about sort of the possibility of there are many, many players and you're documenting them regularly that are that are in one way or another trying to provide credentials, sometimes through institutions, but often on their own. Do you see us having learned things from maybe not well, but learned things from what, how we handled and how the for-profit institutions flowed that would influence that policy landscape for potential other, quote, for-profit entities that might get into this space? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I realize I didn't really answer your last question on that. I, I I do see a growing number of for-profit companies in the sub-degree, non-degree, whatever you want to call them, uh, credential space, boot camps for sure. But even the you know, apprenticeship providers is an interesting one out of France. We've written about open classrooms uh, pursuing accreditation, uh, regional accreditation. So, and, you know, partnering with institutions, a lot of these are doing that. But I think, you know, to be hopeful, and actually I am a little bit uh, here, I think, you know, gainful employment while dormant, it worked. I mean, there, there was a lot more interest and attention, even among investors, and outcomes that's still there. Um, And, you know, I think I I talked to a really interesting, a bunch of investors who admitted that they didn't really pay attention to outcomes before gainful employment, and now they do. And I think, you know, when you look at these non-degree credentials, Julie's right about federal policy being a hammer, but you're probably going to see more strings attached, certainly at the state level. If you're looking at short-term credentials, uh, outcomes being baked into that and some hopefully some high bars and getting data on that stuff is very tough. But you know, the the new short-term workforce Pell proposal from the, the House Republicans has some potentially high bars for outcomes. Just to kind of throw a big wrench into all this, I feel like the another encouraging thing is the debate around credentialism, which I think has been completely absent from the higher ed industry on the whole because of obvious reasons. You know, I think the opportunity at work driven push, where do you need a a degree? Is insurance sales the best degree, you know, for your degree job? No. And you're actually seeing movement there. I don't know how deep that will go. Maybe not encouraging students to take out debt for credentials that aren't really necessary for jobs is a good place to start. Yep. And we're certainly seeing a lot of activity there from Utah to Pennsylvania, following in Mar- on Maryland to, you know, in the, the ways that they have direct control of state hiring, questioning the credentialism there. Kevin, uh, do you want to follow the rare side of the optimistic journalist uh, with any sort of final thoughts here? 
Well, no, I'm sort of stunned by by the the optimism uh, produced here by a journalist. Um, I thought you were all cynical. Um, the way I might frame it is the um, post-secondary universe is much bigger than the Title IV universe. iPads does not describe the entire educational realm that we're going at. I was just at the, the CHIA conference, uh, the Council for Higher Education Accreditation, and the head of the Distance Education Accreditation Council talked about all these different kinds of institutional forms that they were accrediting, things that were just not at all the way a traditional higher education institute. They were focused. They had different kinds of models. They were looking at the their um, market in very different kinds of ways. They, these are not Title IV institutions. These are not probably not going to show up in any sort of database. If we're running a list of how many students are in higher education, they're not going to be part of it. And I think that's that's an important thing for us to remember, that there are a, there's a lot of experimentation that's going on. Those experiments might then drift in, much like Southern New Hampshire University said that they took some of the stuff from University of Phoenix and moved it into these different kinds of world. Where can those kind of blending of different kinds of models and creativity be, be significant and, and important? We just heard from Penn State's Kevin Kinser, Higher Learning Advocates Julie Peller, and Paul Fain of The Job, sharing their thoughts on the state of for-profit higher education. Thanks to all of them for their time and their insights. The issues surrounding the state of for-profit colleges are interesting and important, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about that depending on what happens with the University of Phoenix and any other unexpected developments. But I'm more intrigued by the larger issues we discussed about the extent to which federal policy around accountability in higher education should continue to be kind of disproportionately focused on a for-profit institution sector that is shrinking, and whether we will see people in Washington, like their peers in some state capitals, broaden their focus to ask harder questions about the value and quality of nonprofit institutions and programs as well. We'll probably come back to that issue in an upcoming episode of The Key. For now, that's all for this week's episode. I'm Doug Letterman, and until next time, stay well and stay safe.